One of the most amazing things that we have in our Masonic tradition is the initiatic experience, or rites of passage. We're going to talk this evening not only about that in the Masonic sense, but various initiatic traditions and rites of passages throughout history. We have an awesome guest on this evening that's going to walk us through all that and more. So stick with us, because we have an excellent show for you right after this on Historical Life. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. And now, enjoy the show. Good evening and welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, and we have with us an amazing guest this evening. Better throw our name tags on there. Brother Joe Martinez. You might know him, and I got him muted. Let's, let's yeah. you know, we'll, we'll give him full rights. He, now yeah. he's a full guest of the show. You might know Brother Joe from all over the interwebs these days, um, but most especially from TMR, the Masonic Roundtable. Uh, he is one of the knights on that show. Also, uh, Refracted Light and so many more things. Brother Joe, if you don't mind, I'll let you give a more formal introduction of just who you are. Well, I don't like to be formal, but uh, thank you for having me, number one. Love you very much. Miss you. Uh, my name is Joe Martinez. I am currently, for six more weeks, the master of Manassas Lodge, number 182 in Manassas, Virginia, and uh, also a member of the Kansas Lodge of Research, woo, and a member of way too many other things. So, um, yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Well, we are so excited to have you on the show this evening. Uh you give some of these talks on these various ancient aspects of symbolism and passage and initiation, and you always blow me away. So really, really excited to delve into this topic with you this evening. Before we do so, I definitely want to do a couple icebreakers. And typically on this show, the way we do that is to get to know you just a little bit before we dive into the topic itself. So I'm curious, Brother Joe, do you have any family history prior to yourself within the craft of masonry? No, uh, I do not. Uh, nobody that I know of in my family trees, uh, going back as far as I know, we're, we're not Freemasons. Um, yeah, so I think I'm the first generation, a first generation Freemason. That's fantastic. So that makes me even more curious, not having the uh, the family connection there to kind of draw you in that way. What is it that brought you to Freemasonry and then made you want to make that leap to actually join? Yeah, so that, that was that's a pretty easy question to answer. Uh, I consider myself uh, what people call a Dan Brown Freemason. Um, I read the, <laughs> you know, the Da Vinci Code and like what, 2002, 2003. Um, and uh yeah, I think I, I found a lodge a few months later. So, um, yeah, I didn't have, like I said, I didn't have the, the the upbringing of having Masons in my family. And I don't really recall thinking about my past if I knew any Freemasons, you know, in circle of friends or, you know, my, my parents, friends, things like that. I can't think of a single instance. Um, so I totally consider myself, like I said, a, a, a Dan Brown Mason. So I picked up a Dan Brown book and I read it and I was completely 
mystified and knowing that half of it was crap, but it's pretty cool. Um, you know, I didn't know how full of crap Dan Brown was. Um, God bless him. Lovely author. Does awesome things. Um, until I actually joined the craft. Um, so yeah, so it was a little bit different than the experience I, I read in books. So definitely. Uh, yeah. But it, you know, it was, uh, reading things like Dan Brown or reading, uh, Lomas and Knight, things like the Hiram key and things like that, you know, just a whole bunch of weird off the wall books that piqued me, piqued my curiosity in Freemasonry. And, uh, like I said, I joined and I was like, Whoa, this is different or yeah. <laughs> right. So kind of similar to that. I would say National Treasure was real big around the time that I joined, and that definitely piqued my curiosity. I think played some impact, but I was already kind of in the mix with it. So I'm fifth generation. I've got a bunch of their stuff back there. Awesome. I didn't know any of those guys. They played zero impact, didn't know them. In fact, I, I've told this sport, uh, the story before. When we'd go visit the the gravestones and stuff, I'd always see the symbol and I'd ask about it. And the best answer I got from my parents was, ah, it's some cult they were a part of. And it just kind of got left at that. And I didn't really care anymore to know. Um, but my father-in-law was a Mason. Mm-hmm. And of course, when me and Yvette started getting more serious, he talked about it a lot more. And to me, it was just, ah, it's a bunch of old guys, not for me. And then National Treasure hit. And I swear, it's like you get a new car, right? And you start seeing them everywhere. Kind of the same thing. Once he stopped talking about it, I'd see it on cars. I'd see it on TV. I'd, there was a guy walking through the store one time in regalia. I have no idea why. But you then start it's, to see all these little yeah. and things. Absolutely. Yep. I wanted to know more. So <laughs> it, it's interesting how, you know, aspects like Dan Brown, like uh, National Treasure, just seeing around uh, can spark that within you and often a much different picture on the inside. And with that, I want to know for you, what is it that once you got in, got involved, what is it that kept you around? That is a great question. Uh, And we only have an hour, so I'm going to give you the really short version. But the short answer is I did not stick around. Um, Ooh. uh, Yeah, I had a, uh, uh, I don't even want to say lackluster, um, early Masonic experience. So I... Petitioned the lodge in 2003. Um, I did the traditional learning catechisms and stuff like that. But I was in the army, so I traveled a lot. So it took a little bit longer sure. than, than normal. So uh, I wasn't raised until 2005. So about a year and a half after I, uh, I started. Um, and uh, as soon as I became a Mason, I was very quickly disappointed in the whole process itself. You know, I had just gotten raised that night, super excited. You know, the adrenaline is pumping. Everybody's congratulating you and all this stuff. And then my very first stated meeting, the first meeting I could go to after I was raised, um, they asked me to sit outside and be Tyler because they didn't have a Tyler. And I was like, what do you mean you want me to sit outside? And they're like, yeah, it's just for a day and this, that, and the other thing. And I won't get into all the details, but over the next six months, I was quickly just let down by how much more people were interested in me either filling a chair or doing a job as opposed to just being there or learning anything or participating in, um, you know, the cool stuff that I was looking for. It just wasn't there. It was, you know, quick business meeting that I know the times that I was inside, um, uh, cause I was outside a lot those first six months. Um, and, uh, you know, boring business meeting, lots of green beans, green beans everywhere. Um, you know, they're my fave. And, um, yeah, I got nothing out of it. And I'm like, why am I coming here? You know, at the time we had just had, 
uh, my daughter. Um, she was born, I was still in the military. So my wife was a military spouse. Um, and you know, I'm like, why am I leaving my house, you know, two or four nights a month to come here? I'm like, I'm getting nothing out of it and I'm just getting beat up and, and worked over. So, um, I basically didn't do anything with the craft for about seven or eight years. Um, mm. you know, I still paid my dues, but, um, yeah, it, it offered me nothing of interest. Um, and I said, cool, I joined. That's nice. I got a dues card. And, um, so I did nothing with the craft and, uh, long story short, uh, I had since left the state I was living in and moved to Virginia, um, was working in Virginia and, um, I live far away from DC, which is, I, I work near DC. Um, so I'm a commuter and, uh, I was driving home one night during rush hour, sitting in traffic, just being angry, listening to podcasts. That's what I did. Right. Listen to a lot of podcasts on my, my two plus hour commute home. And, uh, one day I decided to take a shortcut. So instead of taking the highway all the way home, I decided to take a shortcut and it took me through some, some back roads with traffic lights as opposed to the highway. And I stopped at a light and on the right hand side, there was a Masonic lodge. I was like, oh, cool. I know what that is. You know, mind you, I've never, I hadn't been in a lodge in seven or eight years. Uh, didn't wear a ring. Um, no tchotchkes, no fancy hat like you get here from, from Texas, right? Um, and uh, I looked, I was stopped at the light and I looked and I'm like, holy crap, the lights are on. And I looked a little further. I'm like, holy crap, there's people in the parking lot. I'm like, just for funnies, I'm going to pull into the parking lot and see what's up. So I pulled into the parking lot. And there was a bunch of cars there. It was a Monday night. And that's the night my lodge has ritual practice. They have ritual practice every Monday since 1905. And I walked in and Alex, I walked in and immediately there was about eight or nine guys there. They were getting ready to have practice. They're sitting there having coffee in the dining hall. And you've been in my lodge. And I walked in within five minutes. I immediately felt at home. And I was like, wow, these guys are way different than, than what I was accustomed to seeing before. And I stayed and talked with them, told them my story. Um, and, you know, they just welcomed me with open arms. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, what, seven years later, I'm going to be coming out of the East at that lodge. And it's been an awesome ride ever since. Um, so, you know, I felt like I had missed out on seven years of doing absolutely nothing. So when I got back in, you know, I consider myself a born-again Mason. Um, and uh, I jumped into everything. I joined every appendant body that I could think of, you know, everything, even whether whether I wanted to be there or not, I just joined because I'm like, I, I missed out. I'm getting old. I'm in my 40s. And uh, so I joined everything. Some things I really liked, some things I was like, oh, this was a waste, but I joined nevertheless. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's been keeping me pretty busy. Uh, yeah, since 2022. So that's a beautiful story, man. So Thinking about all the stuff that you are involved in today and all the light that I see you bring to so many people uh, virtually and and in person throughout masonry, all had to do because you just so happened to pass by a lodge that was meeting that night. That's right. That's exactly right. That's pretty awesome, man. Total serendipity. Yep. Fantastic. Well, so glad you did. And Really, really glad that you had the right guys there uh, to harness you because we could have lost a good one on just that night alone. Mm -hmm. So, man, I am 
stoked to dive into this topic with you this evening. Before we do real quick, I want to give a huge thank you and shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. If you guys like what we do here, we've been doing it tw- since 2016. You can jump over to the website, historicalite.com slash support and support us on Patreon. And I'm proud to say we finally got our new uh, Patreon exclusive lapel pins in. They're different from the normal ones. So if you want in on that action, I wish I had a picture of it here, but they're on. They're awesome. Get one. Thank you for everyone that supports the show. Now to yeah, yeah. Where's my where's my Patreon lapel pen? Well, you know, uh let see now this link right here, Joe. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna tell you, just you go to that link, and on the other end of that rainbow, yeah, comes a historical like lapel pen. I got it, I got it. Okay, we'll do that. We'll not we'll just talk. the regular one, not just the regular one, the exclusive Patreon one. It's pretty badass. Well, I, like I, want that. I, I don't I'm I get I get FOMO if I don't have things or own things and stuff, so um, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. Well, Use QR code. Uh, I'll let the, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Let, let's, let's flip back over within that Patreon. If you go to the top tier and become a show ambassador, you not only get a t-shirt exclusive to our ambassadors, but we had custom breast jewels made as well. So all that could be yours. What? FOMO, Joe. FOMO. For real. Hardcore FOMO. <laughs> well, I'm running out of real estate in my, in my, in my walls here. So. I, you know what? I'm I'm still tripped up over the fact that you just said a couple minutes ago that there was a point in time that you wore no rings. I, I don't even know how to go on with this hair. episode I from had that. Very luscious hair back then, so I wasn't worried about my my hand and arm jewelry. You know, um, but yeah, we had to adapt and overcome, and that's why. Yeah, because yeah, see, <laughs> the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, man. That's yeah. right. So, well, fantastic, man. So. Rites of passage and initiatic tradition throughout history. First of all, what what got you into this interest to even research this topic? Sure. So, from once once I started to get serious about Freemasonry, I, I quickly realized that there had to be much more to it than uh, petitioning a lodge and joining and sitting through some soggy ritual and you know an even soggier dinner and. Um, I started to pick apart, you know, as I was talking and meeting with different brothers, you know, there were some brothers that were literally, literally there for the simple purpose of just being social with one another, right? They treated Freemasonry like a social club. That's what it was for them. Um, and, and for 20, 30, 40 years, that's all it ever was for them. Then you had other folks where um, they treated it more like a, like a college fraternity, right? You're there with your brothers. There's some, you all went through some similar crap and then you know and you're there and you got to deal with it right and you got to deal with the good ones you like and the bad ones you don't like right and that's kind of the the flavor that it had but for and some people treated it like a charity you know there are guys that would come to lodge simply for the purpose of being charitable with their time or with their money or what have you and that was their purpose for being there but over the years i started to see that there were quite a few people that had the same initial impression that i had and it's not a generational thing. I mean, these are guys that were 25 and guys that were 75 that sure. had this sense that Freemasonry had a little bit more to offer than just social frivolity or a dinner club or a place to be charitable. You know, there was something a little bit more to it. 
And as I started to learn more about that and read more books and, and, you know, get into the interwebs way more, I started to realize that, you know, we have this really unique thing, this, this system of initiation, which other people have systems of initiation, right? They do initiations, but I think ours is really unique in that it uses these archetypes that have existed for thousands of years. So what popped into my head was the question, well, why do we use this symbol or why do we use this story or this, this meta arc? Um, you know, through the three degrees to tell this story to an individual candidate. And, and for me, it started to point me down roads where we started to go back further and further in time and started to see a thousand years ago and 1500 years ago and 2000 years ago, there was the same story arc happening with just different figures interposed, but the archetypes were still the same. And I'm like, well, holy crap, there's, there's, there's a reason why this is here and why it's the way it is. And, you know, it's super disappointing that a lot of people don't see that. Right. Um, Definitely. So, yeah. So that's what started me down this road. Fantastic. So, so in a regard, you, you kind of see the same story told differently. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think so. Well, you have those same, you know, not to get all Joseph Campbell on you. Right. But you have those same points in the story. Right. Right. Um, You know, and, and different rites of initiation or rites of passage, let's call them have those same big markers in them. You know, we'll talk about them a little bit tonight, um, but they're there and they're present and they're there for a reason. They're not just glossed over, you know, unless you're, you know, getting all your degrees in a single night, you know, that kind of thing where, where you don't, you don't experience them individually. Right. That's right. The, right. It's, it's a big difference. You know, we're, I'm a member of the Scottish Rite, I'm a member of the York. I'm a member of every damn thing. Right. And, um, you know, the biggest thing I hear is, well, you know, you go to the Scottish Rite and you get all your old 29 degrees in one day. I'm like, but you've already been through that process of initiation. So you're just there to get more, get more intel and hear more story, you know, and you're not really being initiated more. Right. It, it's not it's different than that first time. You know, it's like that. Sure. That first date or, um, you know, some other weird analogy. Um, you never get to do that again. Right. So, you know, at least in the craft lodge you know, they're the keepers of, of this really amazing process of initiation. And, you know, it's our job to be respectful of it and honor it and at least know what the hell we're talking about and why we're doing it. Right. hundred percent agree. Well, fantastic, man. I'm gonna hand it over to you. I I'm thrilled to hear what you got to say and I'll throw in some questions as they arise. Cool. You want me to share some, share some screen here? Yeah, go for it. Let me see. Let me see how that works. Slides. Oh, this is amazing technology. Oh, don't you babble for a second? Cause I haven't played with this yet. <sighs> babble for a second, man. So not for lunch today. What I have for lunch today. I had a uh, cheap pizza. Uh, it's Friday. It's pizza day though. It, it is pizza day. It yeah, is pizza day. That's okay. So you're, you're talking in the, uh, in the intro there about how much you love green beans. And I just got to remind you for a second time that you, uh, peeved me off online a little bit, just joking around, of course, but, uh, you, you, and I joked around. I said, I was going to send you something and I did, didn't I? You did. You sent (laughs) an entire case of canned green beans. Um, they're still in my garage. They will not be open. Um, dude. Yeah. Dude. Nothing. Premium select Good. green they, beans, the select. best of the best. No, stop it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you came for my installation too. And what I discovered 
about a couple of months later was that somebody had hidden a case of green beans or several people had hidden a case of green beans uh, cans all over the lodge in different places. I've yet to find 12. At Uh, least they were cans. That could have got very nasty. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, cool. Um, So, yeah, I've only found six cans, so I have six more cans to go. But I haven't found them yet. It's processing. So yeah, but listen, I don't, I don't hate green beans. I actually love green beans. I hate Masonic green beans. Um, you know, right out of a number ten can, you don't even drain them out. You just pour them into a pan and turn a sterno on, and that's what you call dinner. I'm like, and that's really like a weird metaphor for masonry, right? It's like you have this delicious vegetable known as a green bean, and the only way it gets served is soggy and full of green bean water. And that's what you get for dinner. And so, yeah, I'm actually, I'll probably do a presentation on, on the metaphor of green beans and, and, and boiled hot dogs. You can't forget the boiled hot dogs. We don't do that here, man. We don't do, uh, <laughs> it, it's so processing. We're going to have to do a job. So we don't do, so I think, uh, yeah, I think if you talk to Jason, um, he had a lodge that did uh, pizza, pizza first state at every, uh, every state at night. I've, I've seen that quite a bit. You know, the, uh, Let's see. We can go ahead and add this to stream here. I, th- I think the worst thing that I ever see is spicy chili served before a meeting, and then you go lock 20, 30 guys in a room. Yeah, for yeah. We've I've not I didn't do chili here. Yeah, yeah. That's a bad choice. All right. So enough about Masonic foods. Let's talk about rites of passage. So um, feel free to interrupt if you have questions, yeah, yeah. Comments, concerns, um, and we'll just get right into it. So. Again, from from the time that you know man first gathered into groups of people and, and tribes, and you know Dunbar's number, and you know those little circles of, of trust that people have, you know, throughout recorded history, they've had traditions and, and ways of life and, and things that make them unique, um, and that's what we called now. That's what we call civilization. So civilization is that culture, that that way of life that defined a group of people, right? All different people over the world, they had their own unique civilizations. And a culture of a society really played a specific role in the history of that society, the traditions that they had, and ultimately how they understood the world around them. And a really important part of most of the major civilizations of the past and how its traditions really informed future generations and cultures that, that really sprang forth from it is the practice and the usages of what we call ritual. So before we talk about ritual and what it means and where it came from, you know, we really need to talk about, you know, time in the grand scheme of things. And it's not playing video, so we'll skip that. So how much time human beings have really spent in, in, this, in this part of the universe, right? So, you know, we do have the prevalent theory of the Big Bang. I'm not going to entertain any flat earth commentary today um, or, you know, universes, you know, 400 years old or whatever the hell. So most people understand the universe to be about 14 billion years old. The sun's been around for 5 billion. The sun's been, uh, the earth's been around for four and a half billion. So, you know, we've been around for what? A couple of million, right? Um, we have the dinosaurs, you know, if you go to the Ark Encounter, where is that in Kentucky, right? Ken Ham's museum. Yeah. If you go there, um, you know, you'll see dinosaurs and people, you know, hanging out, cooking vegetables, green beans together. Um, but again, way in the past. So, you know, we did really cool things like discovered 
fire and how to use it and use technology and then start to form those those civilizations that we are accustomed to seeing today. Um, and sorry, my slides are all, it's not doing picture share. So but oh, you're okay. good. Yeah. So, I mean, some of those examples of civilization that, that predate anything we have in writing. So anything on Alex's bookshelf, these all predate that. Um, you have those Venus statues. Oh, poop. We have those um, Venus statues that predate anything that's been written by 25,000 years. Okay. And they display things like the female form that was used to denote fertility and, and worldliness. And these statues were found all over Europe and all over Asia. Uh, you have things like the use of stone tools that are 60 to 80,000 years older than the earliest fossils of Homo sapiens, meaning that our early ancestors used tools. Um, you have the practice of burial, which you can't see. The practice of burial dates back to about 100,000 years old. So if we stopped and actually buried our ancestors, we had some form of ritual or some idea about dying and death and, and stories about that. You know, so much so that we cared that we, you know, entombed our, our, our relatives in the earth. Um, and then you've got things like the cave paintings that you find in Lascaux and things like that that are 20, 30, 40,000 years old. Um, so there's evidence of civilization that predate anything that we've had written down or discovered that we've written down. So within those civilizations, we have ritual. So ritual really is a ceremony that details rites or customs and serve different purposes. Um, but they were part of most of the civilizations that we're going to talk about today. Um, ritual normally came after a religious system was established and they served different purposes. Um, they served spiritual or vocational transformation, right? If you were joining the priesthood, which was a very important part of most ancient civilizations, right? Um, before YouTube existed, you had the priesthood, right? And they were the ones that were in charge of your spiritual lives. And in, in many places, the structure of your government. You have puberty rights for both boys and girls, right? So the the act of going from youth to adulthood, um, you know, which we still see today. You have confirmation for Catholics. Uh, you have bar and bat mitzvahs for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, getting a driver's license. You have all these different rights um, nowadays that are kind of pale examples of, of the way it was defined before, right? Um, you know, before it was a much more intrinsic and serious process by which someone that was a child became an adult in that society. That's an interesting point. How you bring up like the driver's license, because it's easy to look at history and get impressed, but I think we fail to see stuff in that regard in modern day, you know, like getting married, getting the driver's license, stuff like that. Are definitely that is a rite of passage, right? hundred percent. So yeah. Anything that's considered a rite of passage. Again, it's, um, it's a little bit different than what was practiced in the past because in some, in some societies, you know, that, that puberty right involved, if you didn't make it successful, you'd be dead. So you were either an adult or you were dead. So, you know, we don't normally do that nowadays anymore um, in most cultures, but um, it's still there in one form or another. And then finally, we have those initiation rights into a subset of society. And that's what we're going to talk about and, and focus on today or tonight. Um, and it's really hard to see because your awesome podcast tool changed my fonts bum me out. But um, yeah, so we're going to talk about rites of passage in all these cultures. And it goes back as, as far as 4,500 BCE. Okay. So we're talking about almost 7,000 years ago. Okay. All the way to the present time and, you know, uh, into, into modern day. So we're going to talk about the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Minoans, pre-Hellenized Greeks, 
We'll talk about the Romans. We'll talk about early Judeo-Christian sects. And then we'll start to dip into the Mediterranean and Europe and see how they were influenced as well. And all of these civilizations that we're going to talk about really had some form of rite of passage. Um, and more specifically, this initiatory passage through life, through death, and, and rebirth in one form or another. So, you know, as a Freemason, or if you're a member of another initiatic order, you may hear some things that are absolutely uh, familiar to you. So, within a rite of passage, there's three phases. Um, and a lot of this stuff comes from the work of Merceau Eliad, um, who was a anthropologist in the 20th century and pretty much the de facto um, student of rites of passage. Uh, this man would go live with Aboriginal tribes for years and study their rites of passage and things like that. And his books are all over my bookshelf. Um, amazing, amazing, amazing um, scientist and philosopher and, and person who studied rites of passage and what they meant to people. Um, but he's defined three different phases of initiation. And they pre these predate Eliad, but um, they've been around. So you have these three phases. The first phase, which again, if you're a Freemason, you'll start to find some things that are familiar to you. You have the separation phase where you're separated from the society that you know. Things are removed from you that identify you as a person in that society, whether it's a ring you wear or a a necklace that you have or your wallet, things like that. You're separated from all of those things and you're left at your barest essence or as, as your barest essence as humanly possible in today's, uh, in today's world. So you're separated from all of that before you start this process of initiation. Then you have the liminal stage, which is nothing more than the threshold phase where you're not, you're no longer part of that old society or subset of society, but you're not really in that new society yet. You're kind of in that in-between phase, right? You're behind the veil. You can see what's going on, but you're not, you're not over the veil yet or through the veil. And then finally, you have the process of reintegration where you're reincorporated, hopefully as a new person, into that new subset of society. But what many people forget is you're not only a member of that new society, but you now go back into your old society as that new person. Um, and how do you act? How do you change? How do you live your life? Is it any different than the way you did it before. All right, so let's dip into history. So we're going to start our conversation on rituals um, with the earliest of the modern civilizations, you know, the post-Ice Age civilizations, uh, with the story of the Sumerians. Uh, the Sumerians were one of the longest thriving civilizations, and we have documented evidence that they go as far back as around 4500 BCE. Okay, so way earlier than everybody else you studied in history class in high school. Um, and we do find ritual or evidence of ritual in the earliest form of their writing, which is known as cuneiform. And there were uh, rituals about water consecration and early forms of lustration. And another word for lustration is baptism. So being dipped or immersed in water as a form of ritual. Okay. So everybody here who um, watches those, have you ever seen those TikToks with the, um, uh, I think it's in the Greek Orthodox churches where they like totally like, dunk a baby like five or six times. <laughs> yeah. Those are, those are amazing. Okay. That is full hardcore water immersion. Okay. The flip over action is the best though. And it's awesome. <laughs> right. And, and the, the priest doesn't get wet at all, man. He's just doing his thing and it's awesome. Okay. I'm jelly. I didn't get that. Um, but uh, yeah, so water lustration or baptism, um, they talk about it in Sumer. And again, this civilization pretty much survived in one form or another all the way up through the 8th century BCE. So a very, very, very long time. The Sumerians believed 
uh, as many other civilizations did later on, that things like the stars and the planets that they could see affected the world around them. So they were big into what we now call astrology. Now, astronomy and astrology were basically one science for thousands of years, right? Like they were not separated. Um, so, you know, in our modern sensibility that we're uber scientific, we have broken them up. But for the ancients, it was one science and they talked about it in one way. So they did have one really interesting rite of passage. Um, and the ancient Sumerians were good enough at astronomy that they could predict the time and the day when a solar eclipse would occur, which is really neat. These people were 7,000 years ago, right? Didn't have telescopes, didn't have any of that stuff, um, but they could predict when solar eclipses would occur. So their belief structure included um, bad omens happening around the time of solar eclipses. Okay. So if a solar eclipse was coming, bad things were going to happen and specifically bad things would happen to the king of the land. Okay. The most important person in Sumer, right, is the king. So if something bad happened to the king, something bad would happen to the entire nation. So they had this ritual that they called the ritual of the substitute king. And they would basically find if they knew a solar eclipse was coming, they would find a peasant or a bum or uh, a commoner or somebody, grab him off the street and put him through this initiation where he would basically become the king. He would gain all the powers of the king and become the king. And then they would take the true king, uh, the one that was born into royalty. Uh, he'd be dethroned and they'd put on an old smelly smock on him and they would hide him away with the common folk. Okay. So he would tool around his country, um, basically being a bum. And you had this guy who was two days ago, a peasant. He's now king of the nation. So for those few days where he was king, he really was king. He did all the kingly things and he would make decisions and that kind of thing. And they transferred all of the power from the real king to this, to this commoner. So once the solar eclipse came and went and the ancient astronomer priests were comfortable that there wasn't any danger to the king or danger to the nation, they would end this process of the substitute king. And the way that they would do it was this lucky dude who was made king for a few days and lived a really lavish lifestyle uh, was basically ritualistically killed, either by beheading or having his heart removed. And then the original king was put back in his place. So I can't think of any current rites of passage that we know of that are as, as serious as that. But, you know, that definitely is a rite of passage in one form or another. Uh, now we go to Egypt, one of my favorites. So while the ancient Sumerians were running around doing cool things, uh, having these really interesting rites of passage. It's really the ancient Egyptians who take them on in a much more verifiable and, and documented form. So as early as the 2400s BCE, there were written texts that tell the story of Osiris, his death, his dismemberment, his reunification, and his quote-unquote resurrection um, to Lord of the Underworld, right? So in a very... Quick fashion, you know, it's a story of these three figures, um, Osiris and his wife, who's also his sister, Isis, and their son, Horus, who was born of a widow because Osiris was dead when they had a baby. So think about that for a minute. So Osiris was the ruler of Egypt, uh, super awesome ruler. He gave people knowledge and light and wisdom and all these amazing things. People loved Osiris, right? Um, he was like the Jonas Brothers of his time. Everybody loved him, right? And... He had his brother, Set, uh, who was a little bit jelly, and he was jealous of, you know, all the amazing goodness that Osiris was uh, was receiving, and, you know, Set basically got all the, you know, it's like twins. If you've ever seen twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, like, 
Osiris was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Set was Danny DeVito, right? So all the crap left over is what Set got to be. He was the lord of, of bad things and insects and plague and just all the not fun things that you would want to be the god of. So basically Set had Osiris killed, dismembered his body, cast his parts into the Nile. Isis and a couple of the other pantheon of gods found and retrieved all but one of them. And combine them, put the pieces back together just long enough to breathe life into him so that Isis could procreate with him and give birth to a son who was named Horus. So Isis, because uh, Osiris couldn't resurrect completely because he was missing one body part, and we won't talk about it on the show. Um, so he went on as a, as a reward for having gone through that. He was allowed to be lord of the underworld and the afterlife. So Horus grew to manhood and then challenged his uncle uh, for right to rule Egypt, and he won. Uh, losing an eye in the process. And, uh, you know, he whooped set, kicked him out. And there's many different stories about what happened to him. But the Egyptians took this story of Osiris and his son Horus and had an entire initiatic process wrapped around it where the person who was going to be king was made basically a god. It was a deification of this person, right? So um, if your dad was king, you know, they weren't called Pharaoh then. If your dad was king and he was about to die or died, um, they would take this initiatic process where they turned the old dead Pharaoh or king into Osiris. And then in that same initiatic process, turn the son or the daughter or whoever into the Horus. So it was an initiation from Osiris to Horus. And that is how Egypt maintained a familial dynastic rule for almost 3000 years. It wasn't the same family every time, but it was a transition from father to son or, or father to daughter or father to wife. Um, but it was through the process of initiation, really small footnote. It was Pythagoras many centuries later who traveled to Egypt, went through his own initiation with the priesthood of the ancient Kings. They also went through an initiatic process and then returned with those mysteries to Greece, right? According to legend and even according to some Masonic ritual. So this newfound knowledge definitely changed the course of Greek religious history and Greek initiatic processes for many centuries to come. But before we get to Greece, we've got to have a small stop at Babylon. So Babylon, which rose to power many centuries after the Sumerians had already become you know, a power in that region, they had documented initiation processes for people that were chosen to be part of the priesthood. So this is one of those three examples, a vocational initiation, right? So becoming a priest or a high priest. Um, in their culture um, involved going through this process in order to achieve that status. So in ancient Babylon, there were two different levels of priesthood. First were the actual priests that were allowed to enter the restricted areas of the temple to perform their priestly duties. Um, and then there were uh, the second class of priests, uh, more of a second class citizen that were known as the diviners. Uh, who were not allowed to enter, you know, the cool parts of the temple and things like that. So the actual priests had to go through this initiation ritual that involved shaving their faces and their heads. Um, and then after the candidate was shaved, he was washed in a series of repetitive purification rites in water or lustration. We've heard that already. Um, and after the completion of this bathing ceremony, there was this solemn procession, which brought the priest into that secret part of the temple. And then we don't know what happened there, but at some point they were made a super cool priest. Now, diviners had a really watered down ceremony. Um, going back to that green bean analogy in masonry, they had a soggy kind of so-so ceremony that made them, they were more the working class of the priests and not the actual cool people that got to talk to deities. Um, 
So the difference was those that were purified and lustrated, they were allowed to enter the temple and come into direct contact with God or their gods. Um, and the diviners were not. Um, I found this super interesting when I was reading about this was that the requirements for initiation required that the priests had to be free from defects, um, including things like bad eyesight. So Alex, you'd be out, you know, you wear glasses, um, having kidney stones, uh, having a face that was not symmetrical. Um, it turns out none of us have symmetrical faces. You also couldn't have chipped teeth, cut off fingers. Um, and for some reason, it was really specific. You could not have ruptured testicles. Okay. So whoever was running around doing that, you guys are out. So, but all these defects would immediately ban you from going further. And that reminded me of some of our petitions, right? Like you have to be free of defects. Right, um, right. And some places keep, you know, hold that a little more seriously than others. Um, but, you know, before they were initiated, these candidates underwent other tests of purity, not only checking for broken fingers or missing testicles, but they had to perform tests of the mind to ensure that uh, people were clear of mind and spirit, that they weren't there for weird motives and things like that. So, you know, that they were of their own free will and accord. You know, where else does that sound familiar? So let's leave Babylon. And let's go to Crete. So the Minoans uh, living on Crete was already flourishing at the times of the earliest writings uh, found in the pyramid texts in Egypt. So they had been around for a very long time. It's estimated that around the 2000s, there was substantial trade between them and all these other cultures. So there was a lot of sharing of ideas and identities and things like that. Um, totally there. But Crete is a great example of the rites of passage involving puberty rights or rites of manhood. Okay. And if you can see here, there's a, a picture I took of a fresco um, that involved bull leaping. So their rites of passage for their young boys to become men involved bull leaping, leaping over bulls. Um, and this is where we joked about before. Not everybody survived, okay, leaping over crazy bulls. Um, but the, the term that we use nowadays, taking the bull by the horn, comes directly from those rites of passage of young boys leaping over bulls in order to become men in that society. And there's really speculation, not a lot of concrete evidence, uh, unless you read some Joseph Campbell, that the story of the labyrinth is also an allegory for a rite of passage in that culture. Hmm. Through an unknown maze to a horrific monster in the center who killed thousands of, of people until, you know, according to legend, the hero Theseus used this really ingenious plan to enter the labyrinth, kill the minotaur, and then find his way back out. And that ingenious plan was tying a string to something at the beginning of the labyrinth and unrolling that string all the way through till he got to the middle. And then he just pulled himself by the string on his way out. Super smart dude. Um, but the story of the Minotaur contains all of those elements of that hero's journey or that monomyth or, or the, those markers that we're talking about. Um, again, if you read Joseph Campbell, you read all about it. Now we go to, to the Mycenaeans um, who lived in mainland Greece, right? Before Greek became a nation. Um, and they predated the, the Greeks that we see on TV or in 300 and things like that by, by about 800 years. And during this time, this is when the Greek pantheon started to rise to prominence, right? The ones that we're accustomed to, the ones we see in Disney movies, that's, this is where they start to come from. But they had these really elaborate rites of passage at funerals. So they had funeral rites for the dead that involved rites of passage of their deceased moving on to the next world. Um, so there is documentation. There's a lot of artwork about it. Um, but these ceremonies and rituals uh, involve both men and women. 
Okay. It wasn't just dudes. It wasn't just the ladies. It was one big party. Um, everybody could come and participate in these, in these rites of passage. So it wasn't just the deceased that was going through a initiation. Um, it was everybody that was there during those funeral rites. So just bring that up as a point of interest. So now we have the Greek dark ages. Uh, or the Homeric Age of Greece, because this is the time when Homer wrote. Um, but this is basically when anything bad that you can imagine happening to people started to happen uh, right around uh, the Greek area of the world. Um, nobody knows exactly what precipitated it, but um, a big factor was that all these Greek uh, pre-Greek nations were all individual. They didn't get along. They all fought. Uh, they weren't a unified Greece yet. Um so you had that, then the Mycenaean kingdom fell, uh, there was famine, there was overpopulation. Uh, during this time, writing changed. So the entire form of writing that most of the people used changed essentially overnight. So people couldn't read anymore, and they couldn't read the crap that they had sitting there for hundreds of years. So this is why it's called the Greek Dark Ages. So nothing really happened here. But then we have this point in time when it comes to uh, rites of passage specifically, where we start to rise out of this, this Greek Dark Age. Um, and we start to see the initiation rites become very popular in the city of Eleusis. Um, so the city of Eleusis is right off the Gulf of Eleusis, if you can see that, to the west of Athens. Um, and this is the home of the mystery schools. Um, this is the first documented, defined mystery school that we see um, for the purpose of sharing mysteries with the common man. Right. So you didn't have to be a priest. You didn't have to be a king. Um, this is where anybody who could participate in the mysteries, you know, as long as you met the qualifications, could do so. And these initiatic practices were divided into the lesser mysteries and the greater mysteries or two degrees. Right. How novel. Um, but it really was the longest cycle of initiation for a group of people that we've ever seen. It was almost a thousand years um, that it went on. And they were based on the seasons and the cycles of the year. And it involved a ritual death and a ritual resurrection. Um, so we're going to start to see some markers that, again, if you're a Freemason, may sound very familiar to you. So really quick, the story is, and sorry, I can't move the pictures around. The story involves uh, the daughter of Demeter, and Demeter was the Greek god of the harvest, and uh, or goddess of the harvest, and her daughter Persephone. So Persephone was running around doing what the daughter of a god would do, smelling the flowers, doing all this cool stuff. And Hades caught wind of her and said, she's really awesome. I want to marry her. So they did things a little bit differently uh, than the way we do where you get down on one knee and you ask somebody to marry you and hopefully they say yes. No, if they wanted to marry someone, especially if you're a god, you would go and snatch her up and take her away. Um, and that's what Hades did. He took Persephone, took her down into the underworld and married her. Now Demeter's running around because she can't find her daughter and is searching all over the world trying to rescue her. And finally, she comes to the city of Eleusis and the people of the city of Eleusis love Demeter, revere her, um, give her water to drink, give her food to eat. And they tell her, hey, we saw what happened. We saw Hades came up from the underworld, snatched her daughter and took her back down. So Demeter now traveled to the underworld to get her daughter back. Now, Demeter and Persephone found her and said, hey, we're coming back home. And Persephone was totally down with that because she did not like Hades at all. And I would imagine the underworld is not a cool place to spend your, spend your life. So they started to walk out and uh, Hades tricks Persephone and gives her a pomegranate and says, hey, if you get hungry, go ahead and take this with you. So as they're walking out, they see, they see the little doorway there that you can see in the picture and starting to make her way out. 
and she gets a little hungry because they've been traveling for hours and days and, and so forth. It's a very arduous journey through, through the underworld. She gets hungry and she eats the seeds of a pomegranate. And legend has it that if you ate anything while you were in the underworld, you were now trapped there forever because you ate something from the underworld. So Hades tricks her. Demeter's not having any of that. She calls up Zeus, you know, who's the big dog, and he comes and intercedes. And they basically strike a deal. And Zeus says, well, listen, she has to stay here for at least a certain part of the year because she ate something from the underworld. But she doesn't have to stay here all year long. So for part of the year, she can stay with her mom. And part of the year, she's got to go hang out with her husband. Now, the legend has it that while Persephone was down in the underworld with Hades, Demeter didn't want to do her job. So she was bummed out the whole time. And because of that, leaves would fall. Plants would die. The seasons would get cold. Snow would fall and nothing would grow. So everything that people grew would start to die. And that was the Eleusinians way of describing why the seasons came. You know, why we went from summer to fall to winter to spring. Okay. But they had this entire mystery school wrapped around this story. So we have all the key players and we have all the different archetypes and they're here. So again, you have this two degree system that I like to call it, right? You have the lesser mysteries first and those who participated in the lesser mysteries, they had to purify themselves. They had to divest themselves of their belongings. Okay. You couldn't bring all your crap into the city of Eleusis with you. Okay. You had to leave all that stuff behind. There were contemplative rites. So you would sit there in, you know, prayer or meditation and they were organized in a way that they would do it to thousands and thousands of people. And you got to think, you know, for us, you know, it sounds a little hokey, but um, you know, for us, when we went to our initiation, we probably drove to our lodge or somebody drove us to our lodge. These people would travel by foot from Athens to Eleusis, you know, once a year to go participate in these rituals. Um, but the lesser mysteries would prepare you for the greater mysteries. Um, and the greater mysteries, the those who participated in the Eleusinian mysteries were much better secret keepers than we ever are as a species today. Okay, they didn't have the internet, and there was very little, if anything, written about the greater mysteries. Um, uh, there was very little drawn or, or artwork made about the greater mysteries. But we do know that during that time, there was a dramatic reenactment. There was the part, the initiate would participate in the drama. There was more vows of secrecy. There was the threat of death and more purification. So, you know, many of those markers of all those different rites of passage that we talk about are absolutely present. We just don't know exactly what they are, which is a bummer because it sounds awesome. So now, and again, apologies for the pictures, but this idea of a mystery school starts to spread, right? So it, it breaks out of the, the confines of the city of Eleusis and it starts to spread. You have the cults of Dionysus. You have the Orphic mysteries, the Delphic mysteries. You have the schools of Pythagoras. Pythagoras, you know, he was a game changer. He would not only allow men into a school, he would allow women into a school as well. Um, so it starts to spread all over this, this Hellenized culture. It spreads even further. It spreads, spreads into um, Judaic cults like the Essenes. Uh, they absolutely practice different rites of passage and rituals, early Gnostic sects, and even Mithraism in, in the Roman mystery schools. But now we have the European Dark Ages, which were way less fun than the Greek Dark Ages. Okay, You have the Roman purge, right? So the rise of a state-sponsored religion. Um, so in order to make sure there were no competitors, uh, the Roman empire basically purged anything having to do with mystery schools, with polytheism and non-state sponsored religions. Okay. And this happened for hundreds of years. 
okay? The city of Eleusis and the temples and the uh, Telesterion and all the really cool places where you did initiation, destroyed, you know, raised to the ground. Um, I always include this picture. This is the Pantheon in Rome. So before it became a church, it was actually the Pantheon, the temple of all the gods. Um, so for a very long time, this was a temple dedicated to the Roman or Greek gods, and uh, it was converted to a church. And now it's one of the most popular churches in Rome, right? But I find really funny that they have, you know, since hundreds of years later, they erected an obelisk, you know, because there was this Egyptomania in Europe, um, but they erect this obelisk, which does not mean what they thought it meant at the time. And they put it in front of this quote unquote church. Um, but, you know, they slapped a crucifix on top of it. So now it's church <laughs> and uh, we can move on with our lives. But basically at this point, you know, your mystery school um, process was essentially wiped out. But then we have the Renaissance, right? And this return to the light, as I like to call it, you know, first the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment and all these secret societies that started to rise up and start to bring back this rite of passage for the modern man at the time, you know, and in some places the, the modern woman, but you did have this return to seeking knowledge and seeking more about ourselves and combining the scientific and the spiritual, all the things that we started to do away with for thousands of years start to come back because we feel like we've lost something. Um, and thank goodness we have, right? Because if not, we would not have this, this rite of passage or this initiatic process that you and I have been through. Um, so sum it all up. You know, the history of ritual talks about, you know, a couple of key markers. And those are, one, it's never for the masses. It's only for the few. You know, those few that seek to knock on that door. And they really provide us a path to having a better understanding of our nature and our existence. You know, our place in the world. Or at least they're supposed to. And there's these themes that really span time and, and country and geographic origin. Um, but all these key things that you see over and over again, things like purification, Things like divesting our, our physical beings and our spiritual beings from all the detritus and the crap that we're supposed to leave outside the door. A ritualistic death and then some newfound knowledge upon our rebirth or our raising or whatever you want to call it. So that concludes my talk, young man. Um, right on. That's fantastic, man. There so many excellent points there. And I, I know like we talked in the beginning there, a lot of these aspects that kind of seem, you know, a bit universal. Like you start to see that, that same symbolism and, and aspects from here and here. And, you know, the best way I've described it throughout time is, you know, obviously going through the Masonic tradition is just one of many, but we often see these because once we get to that point of the veil, we use that symbolism to represent what I term as universal truths. You know, there, there's certain things that are what they are in the universe. And the best way we can describe them is through symbolism and such to get that meaning. But there's different sides. I, I guess you kind of say like it's that, uh, what are the seven men and the blind elephant, right? Like we're all kind of going towards the same thing. Yep. Different perspectives. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic analogy. And you know, it's a, uh, I've always been a big proponent of there's one mountain, many different roads, and all roads lead to the top of that mountain. And, you know, I, I think that to your point, there is there is a universal truth there. Um, I can't tell you what it is. Um, you know, you wouldn't be doing any more podcasts if I told you what it was, right? And boom, there, <laughs> it's not something. It's not something that people can tell you, right? It's something you have to experience for yourself. And I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh, I have yeah. it, I know it," but 
man, I'm working towards it. At least I hope so. You know, um, and if in that process I can be a little less crappy of a human being than I was yesterday, then win-win for everybody, you know? Right. Um, right. But yeah, no, you're, there has to be this universal truth because these stories resonate with people for thousands of years. And if they didn't, it would have fallen by the wayside already. Right. But we had this long stretch in time where all this type of stuff was a no, no, right. It was forbidden. Uh, you were not allowed to practice it. And it was so important that, you know, the greatest thinkers of the ages said, we need to go back to that because we're missing something and, and we're less of a species because we don't have that anymore. Um, and again, I think that's one of the reasons that, that drove speculative masonry, you know, back into the forefront and why it became so popular for so long. A hundred percent. You know, an interesting point you, uh, you mentioned there is talking about just, just telling, right. But you know, there, there's that thing, like, I feel like they could, or you could just tell everything, but you're not going to get it until you get it. <laughs> like, I, I think there's, there's a huge point to that because even, I don't know, you could tie in one day classes a little bit here, right? Like, especially through maybe Scottish riot or something like that, where it's this whole nother story and you get it all at once. And it's like, Oh, cool. Shiny things. But often even like Blue Lodge, we've got Doc who's 94 years old and still to this day on a simple opening, he'll be like, wow, I, I saw that differently tonight. And it's like something he knew, but now he knows it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, it's well, it really gets to and, and like, you know, I know we were joking about things like like one day classes and stuff. I, I've I've met amazing one day Masons who are mm -hmm. the prolific, well-read, super spiritual as deep as the bottom of the ocean types of dudes. Right. Sure. sure. Um, I've also met Masons that have been Masons for 50 years and think that all of this crap that we're talking about is complete hooey, you know? So, um, you know, cause they're just there for the dinner and to get out of the meeting by eight 30, you know, and that that's all that they know about Freemasonry. So I will say this, it does, it does lessen the process of initiation when you don't get to experience it. And that's just, that's just, a fact, you know, it's not, I'm not denigrating anybody. I'm not saying somebody's less than some other you're, you're taking away. Oh, from not at all. And that's it. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a huge fact is because there is, especially I think people that go through those one day situations, take that personally. Like it's a personal attack to them where at least everyone that I know that is against one day classes is typically on the side of, no, we're on your side, but you kind of got robbed. Like your experience could have been better. And thankfully you're of the right mind that, you know, it impacted you enough and you knew which way to go, but a lot of people don't. And that initial impact is like vitally important. Right. And it, it's, you know, going, it's going back to that, you know, it's your first and only time that X is ever going to happen. Right? right. So do you want to be the one playing out the drama? Uh, or do you want to be the one sitting in the back row, you know, trying to listen? Um, and everybody's going to tell you, of course, I'll be, I want to be the one playing the part. You know, I don't want to be the one sitting in the back and having a scooch closer because I can't hear somebody. But, um, but yeah, but again, it's, it's, it's what you do with it afterwards that really counts. Right. Um, as much as that pains me to say, right. Because I am a, I'm an initiation person, right? Like you want to, sure. you want to make the initiatic process so memorable and so special for that person that you pull out all the stops in order to do that. And, um, you know, some people, but again, you know, I, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of all the people who went through it like me, 
you know, over the course of a year and a half or something like that and had super crappy initiations. You know what I mean? You know, their three degrees were yeah. lackluster, you know, guys who hunt on the sidelines or people doing ritual terribly or, you know, reading out of a book and, you know, or delivering it like my, you know, like my nine-year-old would, you know, a, a, a research paper, you know, in fourth grade, you know, like <laughs> I learned about trees. Trees are the best. They are green, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, and, and one side of my face, I'm saying, yeah, this is bad. But on the other side, there's so many people that had that really lackluster experience doing it the right way that there probably is no silver bullet or right answer. No, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, to that fact, I didn't realize until quite a while down the road, sitting there watching a degree and not to get too far into it, but it just hit me. I don't remember this part. And it was the apron lecture because when I went through it, I didn't get it. It was just simply oh. to skip the part, take this. And doc at our, at our lodge up here, likes to do long form. I'm sitting there listening. Like, yeah, I, I don't remember any of this. See that whole, that whole, <laughs> that, that whole short form, long form thing confuses me because I come from a jurisdiction where there is no short form. It's right. It's one degree. It's done one way. And since time immemorial or 1792, you take your pick. Um, you know, but there's no, there's no cutting out parts of it or making them shorter. So for sure. Well, my brother, we are at the nine o'clock hour. We Ooh. typically do a traditional toast here. And since you're our guest this evening, I want to see if uh, you would be so kind as to offer us a toast. Uh, let me fill my, my charging glass with. What do you, what are you toasting with this evening, brother? Uh, We're going to toast with some bullet. Sweet. I have not tried that. I'm going to have to give that a try sometime. This is my jam, man. Uh, yeah, Bullet Bourbon. Um, not a sponsor of the show, but you know, you guys can be a Patreon. Go to his website, you know, and send him some bullet. Uh, that there is my go. my go-to bourbon. Um, and I'm toasting with my traditional toasting mug. And, Fantastic. Uh, I've actually got some uh, Jack Daniels that's still left over from Masonicon, Kansas. Also, oh, not a sponsor, but you guys should. Not a sponsor, Bullet Bourbon. And what we got here? This is a Leadership Academy 2019 toasting how was, candy. How was Leadership Academy 2019? Was it good? I don't even remember, to be honest. I'm sure it was fantastic. Maybe you filled up that shot glass. <laughs> um, I guess we'll go with the, let's go with the Tyler's toast. It's my favorite. Very so, well. All righty. Um, so, dear brethren of the mystic tie, the night is waning fast. Our work is done. Our feast is o'er. This toast must be the last. Good night to all. Once more, good night. Again, that farewell strain. Happy to meet. Sorry to part. And happy to meet again. You're here. Cheers. Mm, that is yummy. Very good stuff. Well, my brother, I want to thank you so much for coming on this evening. You always deliver and come through and blow my mind. We're definitely going to have to go through that and nitpick some points again, and we'll have a, uh, a discussion because there's so much to unpack there. You know, one, uh, one random thing, and it really, there's an explanation for it, but you're talking about so much with the, the kings and the washing traditions, right, of part of that ritual. And it just made me think because I was reading on it the other day, um, but like, I think it was King Louis was terrified to bathe. And mainly because in that time period, uh, water was disease stricken, mm -hmm. but they said he only bathed four times in his entire life. So I don't know, kind of made me wonder about the two uh, <laughs> rites of passage. One was definitely less smelly than the other. Sounds like a high schooler, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
don't like to bathe either. Well, awesome. hey, listen, brother, thank you for having me. This was an honor. I absolutely loved you um, over the years, uh, putting out awesome content. You know, I was definitely one of those uh, commute listeners. So, uh, again, super honored to, to be here. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Love you, bro. And thank you for coming on to everybody joining us live this evening. Thank all of you. Uh, we appreciate you sticking around. Make sure you hop over to the YouTube. I'm not Facebook. Eh, that shot hit hard. Hop over to the Facebook group and continue the conversation there. Until next time, keep preserving history. We'll see you guys soon.